If you have your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 11. That's where we will be as we continue to uh, go through this uh, wonderful gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, otherwise known as one of the synoptic gospels. And as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice uh, some very more similarities than differences. There are some differences, and um, as we come across those, I'll try to point them out if we have time. But if you'll join me this, this morning, Luke 11, 37 through 54, this is actually um, the second part of this, of this passage because it's, it's quite lengthy, and there was just no way uh, to get it all into, into one message. So we'll build a little bit. I'll go back and give you the points just for a few minutes from last week and then dive into the text for this week. Basically what is happening here, just to give you a, um, just a, a brief over, overview, a friend of mine says a 10,000-foot view, um, when Jesus comes to this earth and comes to his own people, Jesus does something um, that is very provocative. Well, he does a lot of things that are provocative, but one, one specific thing that he does that is very provocative. Jesus does not choose the established Jewish leadership as his apostles and as his messengers. Who does he choose? Fishermen. He chooses the common, the common man. There is a tax collector. Uh, there is a zealot. Uh, but that's what he does. And so basically from the very beginning, he sends a very strong message, a very strong message, a very offensive strong message to the establishment that they are off the rails. And that in order to get Judaism back on the rails and to recognize the true Messiah, He's going to have to call people from a complete different walk of life, meaning the apostles that are fishermen and just everyday folks. So what you have here is, going through the book of Luke, you have a culmination of them finally, their hostility finally reaching like an, an apex or a zenith or coming to a head, as we would say in modern culture with this dinner that this Pharisee has invited Jesus to. So what we see last week when we read the text, we see this invitation that turns into a confrontation. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside... You are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And so everything else that he, that he preaches to them at this, at this dinner is kind of an expansion of them paying more attention to the outside than the what? Than the inside. What really matters which is the inside of what we believe and how, because that will affect how we behave and how we act. So we see this invitation that turns into a confrontation. Then we see Jesus focus on the reality that inner, that inner purity, inner purity is more important than the appearance of outer purity, right? I mean, that's, we, we, we clearly see that. And then Jesus hits them at several different levels um, of criticism about how they are missing the heart of the law as they lead their people. So let's go ahead and pick up, go ahead and get my notes ready here. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 45. Now he's, he's been addressing the Pharisees so far. 
Okay, and he's really gone after them pretty hard. He gave them what the Bible calls woes. Woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees. Which is really the strongest type of warning that you can give in the Bible, especially to leaderships. What that basically means is, woe to you. You are going the wrong way. You are misleading your people. You need to stop, cease and desist what you're doing and listen to the, listen to the correction that I'm bringing you. That's what Jesus is trying to do for them. And why is he trying to do this? Does he hate the Pharisees or does he love them? He loves them. He loves them. And I don't know about you, but one of the most difficult things that you will do in this life is have to bring correction to people that you love. That is hard to do. Can I get a witness? Hard to do. Somebody that is a friend of yours, somebody that is a fellow coworker of yours, somebody that you have, that you have known for years and and value and are friends with, and then for them to kind of get off, off the rails, going in a direction that they shouldn't be, and then you knowing that you're supposed to go after them to try to bring them back and convince them that they're wrong. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here to these Pharisees. He's trying to, to get them to pay attention and to come back to the truth of the Word of God and the meaning of the Word of God. So look at verse 45. This is where we'll pick up uh, this morning with these new, with these new passages with, these, with this lawyer. So one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in, in saying these things, you insult us also. So we had Pharisees, we had lawyers, most likely the lawyers and the scribes were, were in an interchangeable office. And so you have, they're in this room and Jesus is going after the Pharisees. And so finally one of these lawyers has had all he can take. And so he speaks up and confronts Jesus and he says, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Wow. So what's the point that Jesus is saying? This is what I think Jesus is saying, and this is the principle, because, I mean, obviously you're not Pharisees, amen? Amen? You're not Pharisees, okay. But what is the deeper principle that is applicable to us in today's church, in today's leadership? Well, I believe that the principle is that leaders must set the example in obedience and service. And what you see are Pharisees and lawyers that are not doing that. They are not doing that because if they were, Jesus would be complimenting them and encouraging them and not bringing a woe upon them. So they are off the rails. They were not being obedient to the word of God. They were being obedient to their own what? traditions, to their own expansion of the law, to their own additions to the law that now had become this huge oral tradition. That's what he means by that. So after Jesus gets finished with this opening rebuke of the Pharisees' hypocrisy, a lawyer, most likely also a Pharisee, speaks up and lets Jesus know how insulting his words are to them as well. Now, a lawyer would most likely be similar to a scribe, and scribes, if you don't know, this is always fascinating to, to learn about these, Scribes were a specialized area of study and helped the Pharisees understand and interpret the law. So the Pharisees would then take the scribes' interpretation and apply it and enforce it among the people. So when Jesus insulted the Pharisees, he also insulted the scribes and the lawyers. Now, notice what Jesus does not do when the lawyer lets him know that he's insulted him. What does he not do? He does not apologize. Did you notice that? 
He didn't apologize. He didn't say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry I insulted you. I, I take it back immediately. Jesus didn't, he didn't say that. In fact, Jesus sharpens the offense and shoves the knife in a little deeper on the lawyer because, again, he loves him and he's trying to turn him from his lack of knowledge to the truth of the gospel. And then Jesus brings the woe to them. And remember, I've already told you what a woe is. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Well, leaders are supposed to set the example in obedience and in service. And I can promise you right now, the policy that I have always followed as a Christian leader, whatever, in whatever place that I served, my policy was always just, it wasn't anything written, it was just in my heart, that I would never ask, I would never ask somebody else to do something that what? That I wasn't willing to do. And I believe that as servants and people in God's church, there should really be nothing outside the scope that we're not willing to step up and to do, to be that example and to be that leader. But in this case, the Pharisees and these lawyers, their own, their own burdensome oral traditions, they were not helping Israel, they were not helping their people, they were not being obedient to the word of God, number one, and they were not serving their people so their people could understand exactly what it was that they expected. They were real good at criticizing and not real good at helping at all. Can I get a witness there? Don't you love people like that that just criticize, 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 and never give you some help to understand, well, what is it that you want me to do? You know, but that's what, how the Pharisees were. Woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, here's the million-dollar question. What is the million-dollar question is, what were the loads that were hard to bear? Well, the burdens were in the same realm of what sparked this entire occasion. What sparked this entire altercation, so to speak, as Jesus went into this home. He went in and sat down at the table, and what did he not do? He didn't wash his hands. And he read the disgruntledness in, in the minds of the Pharisees, and he began to give them these woes. So it, it, it is things in, in that area that Jesus is talking about, these additions to the law. So these burdens consisted of many regulations by means of which the ancient rabbis and law experts had buried the law of God and deprive men of their liberty and peace of mind. In the scripture, we see two or three of these examples, and I'll give you uh, just, a, just a couple. Number one, I believe it's in Luke chapter six, verse one, where Jesus and the disciples were picking the heads of grain on the Sabbath and rubbing them with their hands. And the Pharisees said, well, that's, that's, that's paramount to what? To reaping, yeah, to, to, to reaping and threshing. And that's not true. They went through with their hands. This is, this is an act of mercy. The book of Ruth talks about this. They were gleaning in the fields. That's called gleaning. And that was okay if you were poor and you were hungry. You could do that. Number two, healing a person on the Sabbath was wrong unless the person's life was in immediate danger. All these types of things were burdening. And then, of course, the ceremonial washing of the hands in connection with every meal that was required of everybody. That's burdensome. Burdensome. It's not what the law said, but the Pharisees and the lawyers had said it was their interpretation of the law and therefore equal to God's word and therefore you had to do it. And Jesus says, no, that is not true at all, not true. 
We saw this um, in the New Testament in the book of Acts when the church began to explode. You had this group of people called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers, when Gentiles began to come into the church, the Judaizers were telling them that, it, that believing in Jesus was fine, that was, that was great, but you also had to be circumcised and you had to adhere to the law. And so they had to have this big meeting in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and that's where the apostles said, no, no, that's, that's a yoke that our own forefathers were not able to bear. The scripture says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, which would be perfect adherence to the law of God for salvation, circumcision, and the law was not true. How does, how does, how does faith come? Through works or belief? Belief. That was very clear, Paul had said that in, in, the, in the letter to Galatians. He said, before, before the rite of circumcision was given, Abraham believed and God counted it to him as what? Righteousness. So Jesus is saying this is not right. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So the lawyers were the ones who interpreted the law to the extreme, to the extreme, yet did not come alongside the average Israelite to help them understand what was expected, nor did they fulfill their own teachings, which probably meant, probably meant that when they were in public and other eyes were on them, they made a big show of all their rituals. But when they were behind closed doors, do you think they did those things when they were at home? Probably not. That's probably what Jesus means by that. They don't carry, they don't help carry the burdens of the people. They are not leaders that are setting examples in obedience and service. They are enslaving their people through expecting them to do things that the word of God never prescribed. Never. That's the problem Jesus is saying. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I think that speaks directly to the Pharisees. I think that they thought they were all that, and they were really nothing. All we are are merely vessels of God's grace and mercy. Amen? That's what we are. We teach the truth, we tell the truth, and we love people, and then God, God does the work in the person's heart. So Jesus is calling them out on their hypocrisy, hypocrisy. And unrepentant hypocrisy is a disqualifying event for a leader. Leaders are held to a higher standard because our impact is further and wider. When we fail in ministry, it has far-ranging impact and continues to do so. Amen? That's why leadership is so important. And that's why our lives are so important. And that's why our morals are so important. And that's why our work is so important. It's because we set the example in obedience and service. And unrepentant hypocrisy is, 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 is unacceptable from the hearts of leaders. The only hope we have is to come to repentance, which is why Jesus is pressing them, of our own sins publicly to those that we have harmed, and possibly even step away from ministry to be ministered to for as long as it takes. First Timothy chapter three, verses two and seven gives you some 
some New Testament qualities of leaders or character traits. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he might not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. That's what your ministers here at Parkway Baptist, the modern day ministers that, that are trying to fulfill the office of the new, that the New Testament calls for, those are our qualifications as, as your leaders. That's, that's, that's our qualifications. I can remember when I first came across this passage, I almost rejected a call to ministry because I'm like, man, there's no way. Shelby Hazard, there, there's no way. No way. Then I met Paul, and I, got, I was okay, amen? Because Paul killed people, and I hadn't done that, amen? Not that I knew of anyway. So, so leaders, leaders must set the example in obedience and service, and these Pharisees and these lawyers were not doing that. They were not doing that. They, they were creating an impossible standard that the people could not, could not meet. That's what they were doing, and that's what had Jesus angry at them. Let's look at the next, the next few verses. Each generation is accountable for their rejection of God's messenger. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you were witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. <laughs> Did y'all hear that? <laughs> Could you imagine being the audience in that room that day, being a Pharisee or a lawyer or a scribe and hearing Jesus say that? That the blood of the prophets persecuted in the past is on your hands and your mama's hands and your daddy's hands and your granddaddy's hands and your grandmother's hands? That's what he's saying. So each generation is accountable for their rejection of God's messenger. Now, what is Jesus saying here about these tombs? Is Jesus saying that these lawyers and their hypocritical beliefs and practices follow in a long line of those that have per per persecuted and killed God's authentic messengers? They didn't personally pick up the stones and kill them, but they are guilty by association and by legacy because they are practicing the same things that they practice, so inevitably they will do the same thing. That's hard words for Jesus, from Jesus. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. So lawyers and scribes, you may think, this is kind of what Jesus is saying, you may think that you are innocent because you didn't pull the trigger or throw the stone, but you build their tombs, you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. Your fathers killed them, you build their tombs. Now, is Jesus, this is a question 
that hit me as I was, because I mean, we, we, we just got, um, you know, all of us uh, put headstones and, and, and things on the graves of our loved ones. I mean, are they, is he condemning the building of tombs for the dead? I mean, no. Especially dead prophets? No, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, is that to them, to the spirit of these Pharisees, these lawyers, and these scribes, the only good prophet is a what? Dead prophet. That's what Jesus is saying. This evil generation only honors the prophet in their death and not in their life. I mean, if you're gonna honor a prophet in their life, what do you do? How do you honor the prophet in their life? You listen to them and you heed what they say. You know, not too long ago, uh, back when we were in Columbus, we, the, the man that we bought our first little army jeep from was a guy named Ed Dangerfield. And I was so hoping his name would be Rodney because that'd make the story so much better. But his name wasn't Rodney, it was Ed. And so when we were there negotiating the purchase of that old CJ3, I asked him, you know, are you sure you don't want to keep this old Jeep for your grandchildren? Because, I mean, that's our whole purpose is to, you know, pass them down. And he looked at me, he stopped and looked at me, and, and he said, uh, well, he said, you know, my, my, my grandchildren don't, don't come around a whole lot. They don't come around a whole lot at all. And uh, he said, I, even, I have even gone so far to tell them not to come to my funeral because if they didn't come see me when I was alive, don't worry about coming to see me when I'm dead. That's kind of the same spirit that Jesus is saying these Pharisees have. If you really love them, and you really care about them, when they come, and they are covenant enforcers, and they preach out of love to turn you from evil, to turn you back to covenant with God, you should do it. You should listen and you should do it. Not then later, after they're dead, feel guilty about it and build a tomb to soothe your guilt. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Therefore, verse 49, based on this long history, Jesus says, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So, so what, is, what is the wisdom? What is he talking about? What is the wisdom of God? Well, how is God's wisdom known? His word, that's how we know that God exists, is his word and nature, but special revelation is his word where he reveals himself to us in his word. So when Jesus says the wisdom of God, he means the word of God says. I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, and we've seen that. You see that all in the New Testament. Those words were, were clearly fulfilled. But let's look at this time span. This is one of the most interesting things in this passage Jesus gives a time span of the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, right? You remember who Abel and Zechariah? Now, Abel is, everybody knows who he is. But Zechariah, you have to do a little digging, because I, I, I was a little cloudy. I mean, I remember this story in this passage, but I had to do a little digging myself. But let's do Abel first. 
So Abel takes us to Genesis chapter 4, which is the beginning of the Bible. Both brothers bring offerings to the Lord. Cain brings produce, and Abel brings the firstborn of his flock. God looks on favor on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. So Cain gets angry. God tells him he has another chance to do what is right, but Cain chooses the way of what? Jealousy. And then what does he do? And commits the first murder in the Bible when he kills Abel. So Jesus is telling the leaders in that room that they belong to who? Cain. They belong to Cain. That's their heart. The blood of Zechariah takes us to 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 and 21. I'll just read that for you. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. So again, Zechariah, the son of the priest, trying to call Israel back to repentance. And what do they do to him? They conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. That's horrifying. So you have the first recorded murder of Abel being killed, and you have the last recorded murder of a prophet in 2 Chronicles 24. And Jesus says, the blood of all, the, of all that time is on your hands. Because you still have the same heart now that your fathers and your grandfathers had for all those years in killing the prophets. So you contrast the two instances, both instances of murder that was in response, get this now, that was in response to a spiritual failure on the part of the murderer. Cain's sacrifice was rejected, Abel's accepted, Cain kills Abel out of jealousy. Zechariah was the son of the faithful priest Jehoiada that had helped uh, King Joash since he ascended to the throne at 8-7. When Jehoiada died, Joash began to listen to the evil princes of Judah and strayed far from the Lord. Abel was killed privately in a field, we think just the two of them. Zechariah was killed between the what? Altar and the sanctuary. Killed in God's house. One was killed in a field, one was killed in God's house, and both of them died by how? By what? Stoning. They were both stoned. So Jesus is saying to them that these Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers are the same as those murderers. And when Jesus says, shed from the foundation of the world, he is ascribing their actions to Satan by taking them that far back to the judgment of the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, meaning Satan's offspring, and her offspring, which means God off, God's offspring. You think that made them mad? Yeah. Every new generation that fails to take to heart the lessons of the preceding generation is adding to its own guilt and therefore to the severity of its punishment. Words by Dr. Hendrickson. So each generation, each generation is accountable for their rejection of God's messenger. That's not feel good preaching. There, there, there's no way I can take these last two Sundays and make it feel good preaching. The closest we got was last Sunday when I said garlic dust, amen? <laughs> Which all of you remembered, and I had jokes all week long about that, so thank you very much. Do you remember anything else about the message last Sunday? Probably not. 
So each generation is accountable for the rejection of God's messenger. All right, then finally, last point. Well, we got two more, sorry. False shepherds lead others away from the truth. Verse 52, another woe. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. The primary responsibility, I'm talking the primary responsibility of any man or woman called of God is to teach the truth and lead people toward God. That's it. Now, how, you know, how, how God calls them to do it, there's all different types of ways that you serve God. But the primary responsibility that we have, that I have, that Colton has, that Clayton has, that Carol has, all of your paid staff here, the primary responsibility that we have is to teach you the truth about what God's word says. Now, in this passage, Jesus calls it the key of knowledge. Well, who's the key of knowledge? Him sitting right there telling them that he, that that's the key of knowledge. It's the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, who they will eventually be intent on killing and who are secretly uh, just furiously angry at him right now in that house around that table. So taking away the key, the key of knowledge. I mean, he says, you didn't enter and you hindered those who were entering. So not only have you missed it yourself, but those who, who were trending in the right direction, once, they, once you found them, and once you started ministering to them, and once you started teaching them, you shut it off and kept them from the key of understanding. I'm going to tell you right now, there is not a greater fear, concern in my life as a gospel minister, that something I do, something I say, would shut, would shut somebody's mind off from the kingdom of God. Now, I know the Holy Spirit's stronger. I, I mean, I get all that. If, 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 if God's, I mean, I'm not gonna be able to, to completely turn somebody completely away from God. I understand that. But I can do things that make them wonder about the kingdom of God. Well, if, if, if this guy's a, a Baptist preacher and this guy's called of God, but yet he says these things and he does these things, I mean, I don't wanna go to church. I get that in the world. You know what I mean? So our primary responsibility is to teach others the truth and see them come to know God. And I'm gonna tell you what, in this day and time, and I mean, it was, I think it's equally as hard as it was in Christ's time. I, I really do, to teach people the truth and to hear them hear it. Now, 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 now here, they're all about Jesus and, 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 and heaven. But when you go beyond Jesus and heaven and start like expecting the rest of the Bible to materialize in their life, that, that's when you have trouble. That's when you have problems. They're all, the people are all about, oh, Jesus, I'm, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. Really? Okay, well then, why does your life look like this? If you know Jesus and you say you're following him, why does your life look like this? Then you're meddling, amen? That's what they say. Now you're meddling, preacher. It's our job to meddle, amen? It's your job to meddle in my life. You can meddle in my life. You can ask me any question you want. I'll tell you. You might not like the answer, but I'll tell you. You didn't enter and you hindered those who were 
entering. You know, I can remember we went to Honduras uh, back several years ago, and um, we were trained to go to Honduras and, and told specific things. And uh, they were like, now, when you go to Honduras, you can't wear shorts. And I was like, isn't it like 105 degrees over there? And they're like, yes, but you can't wear shorts. The girls can't wear shorts and the guys are not supposed to wear shorts. I'm like, really, why? Or not, not short, short shorts, you know, you know what I mean? Because when you're a Christian missionary and you go to Honduras and they see you dressing like that, that sends a message to them that you're really not a godly person because why would a godly person dress like that? They said, you also can't smoke when you go to Honduras if you smoke because they will look at that as you not being a godly person because why would a godly person smoke and hurt their, their body? There were several other things too, consuming alcohol, obviously. Uh, they didn't want women to wear a lot of makeup or a lot of jewelry when they were on the mission field because it made them look worldly. This is some of the most, this, some of the most impoverished people on planet Earth and you don't wanna send them a prosperity message that you want to help them understand that this is about, about God and holiness and not about, about wealth. But again, it's, it's the same point I'm trying to make. How we live, how we speak, the things that we do in our life matters because the world is watching. Just like everybody was watching these Pharisees and seeing the mean-spiritedness and all of their legalistic tendencies and this incredible oral tradition that, was, that, was like ins- that had enslaved their people so much to where they missed Jesus. We don't wanna be, we don't wanna be doing things that, that are in that ballpark like the Pharisees did. So we have to be careful. John 10, seven to 15 says, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to what? Steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now that's John, but you could take that same contrast and apply it to these Pharisees and these lawyers and these, and these, these scribes that are at this house with this Pharisee. As far as Jesus were concerned, they were thieves, they were robbers, they were murderers, because that's exactly how they were, they were leading their people away from God, away from the truth, and doing everything they could to stamp out Jesus and his ministry. God forbid that that ever happened to us, amen, that we would ever do anything to stop the power of God and his ministry and his word to the people he's, he's saving. Finally, verse 53 and 54, and this is where we'll end. False shepherds will fight to prove they are right. So Jesus gives them these woes, and these are, these are scorching woes. I mean, these are not, I mean, I just don't know how I would react if I was sitting across a table and somebody came at me with these woes. And, and here Jesus is giving these woes to these Pharisees, who many of which 
were multi-generational Pharisees. Their father, their grandfather, they'd been in their lives for years, and then Jesus comes bringing these scorching woes, and they, they, they hate him for it. You ever been in those shoes before? When you can clearly see that somebody is going off the rails and you try to bring admonishment, you try to bring correction, and they hate you for it. Well, you're seeing it in the scripture right here with Jesus. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So they are trying to embroil him in a quarrel is what they're trying to do. They're, they're throwing theological question after theological question after theological question after theological question, probably 10 to 12 of them within two or three feet from him, maybe right up in his face. Who knows? We don't know. We just kind of have to speculate how this was happening. And they are going after him nonstop, trying to get him to make a mistake or say something that they could then use against him. <laughs> Somewhat sounds like politics in America, amen? Somewhat. And Jesus comes through it with flying colors as he always does. But what I've tried to do over the past couple weeks with these passages is to help you understand and help myself understand. People, some people, hate Jesus and hate the truth of the gospel. And you never know how far they're willing to go to shut the gospel down. Sometimes it's character assassination, gossip, dissension, those types of things. Sometimes it's financial persecution. Or in Jesus' case, execution. Lie about him so much and give so many falsehoods about him that he gets entangled with the Roman government for treason, or for sedition, and he gets, put him on a, gets him put on a cross and executed. Now we know what man meant for evil got men for good, but it doesn't take away from the fact that I can promise you Jesus did not enjoy all that he went through. He was heartbroken to see his people reject him. God, God takes no pleasure in, in the wicked going, going to hell. I mean, you do realize that, amen? The Bible's very clear about that. Takes no pleasure in that. But yet, it's gonna happen. So instead of listening to Jesus and taking heed his correction and admonition through woes, what do they do? The fruit of their heart. What's in their heart comes out of their mouth. And they begin to persecute him and question him and try to, try to quarrel with him. He gets heated and they try to confuse him and try to trap him. And that's where the story ends today. So once again, we see the invitation turns into confrontation. We see Jesus point out clearly with the cup, the inside and outside of the cup, which was the, the entire trajectory he went on with them, is that inner purity, inner purity is more important than the appearance of outer purity, and don't lose grace in the expansion of law. I mean, don't, don't lose the truth of the scripture because you're gonna make this, this huge oral tradition to try to keep you from perhaps sinning 
I mean, the whole heart of the Bible is forgiveness. Amen? That's the whole heart. You're just creating this beast of a works mentality that you, you will never be able to fulfill, is what Jesus says. And then today, leaders must set the example in obedience and service. Each generation is accountable for their rejection of God's messenger. False shepherds lead others away from truth, and false shepherds will fight to prove they're right. I believe all of that is supported by the passage that we have read today. Finally, a proverb that I believe fits this perfectly. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will what? Love you. So these men, by their hatred of Jesus, are proving that they are foolish and outside the will of God. Do we want to be in that place, foolish and outside the will of God? No. No. Let us pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for sending us a bold Savior that cared about people enough to confront them, in some cases, harshly, as what we see today in these passages. Lord, help us to glean from this what you would have us to glean from it, Lord. And Father, I just, I thank you so much, so much for your mercy and your kindness to us as your people. Go with us now as we enter into this time of invitation and we pray that there is one person that is here that does not know you that they would taste and see that you are good, that they would be moved, as I say often, from darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son, to come to know forgiveness of their sins, to be made into a new creation, to escape the enslavement of the world and the worldly systems and come into the kingdom of grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.